Welcome, everybody. It's Movie Geeks United. We are back for one of our most beloved annual shows. Uh, we started with the summer of 1983, and we are now up to the summer of 92. And, man, the pickings are becoming slimmer and slimmer every year. <laughs> I was saying, I'm glad someone said that. <laughs> yeah, but sometimes we can have even more fun talking about movies that uh, don't work. As opposed to those right. that do, but uh, yeah. that's fine. Our good buddy, everybody, all the movie geek listeners love and know Aaron. So Aaron joins us every year for the series, and we're gl- glad to have him with us. Uh, okay, so I always start out these conversations with uh, a characterization of the summer as a whole, just briefly. Uh, Aaron, since you're our guest of honor tonight, how would how would you characterize the summer of '92? Uh, it's an off summer. It's an off summer. There's no, uh, there's no truly great movie from that summer. Uh, well, I take it back. I mean, there'll be one film late in the summer, obviously, that wound up being a big deal. Um, but and it is a terrific movie. But there truly is no. But it came, like I said, it came late. There truly is no uh, movie that you know that defined that summer. Uh, having said that, there are a few titles that I do really, really enjoy, and there's even a couple of titles that have held up to repeat viewings, you know, 25 years later. But as far as like, you know, you know, just going back from the previous summer, 1991, you know, we talked about a year ago, you know, that had a, you know, Truth or Dare, that had Boys in the Hood, that had Point Break, and the commitments, and you know. You know, even fun, you know, summer stuff like, you know, Backdraft and and Thelma and Louise. Uh, you know, there is something, there is an energy going on. Jungle Fever. There is a there's a real energy going on during the summer '91 that is kind of uh, on hold in '92. There's a little energy, that little spurt here and there, but it seemed like kind of a, it really did seem like a placeholder. Uh, where you know even the stuff that they they touted was like okay there's gonna be this, the breakout stuff, it just felt like yeah you know we walked you know you went you liked you maybe even liked it but it just didn't live only a couple of films truly really lived up to expectations. Okay, and Dean, what do you think? Lots of goofball comedies, uh, re- really goofball comedies. Um, lots of uh, dumb action movies uh i agree there's no uh there's no like sort of culture defining uh movie um except except for the one you know that comes late in the summer which is a big deal but uh other than that you know it's it's a it's a very blah time for movies i think so you know you i concur i mean let's be honest it's clint summer I mean, Clint comes in and saves the whole whole thing from completely well, being in the Well, don't give away the ending. <laughs> well, no, 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 but that's the thing. We talked about 1992. Hey, it's a 25-year spoiler. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah. No, but that's what you're talking about. I mean, you're talking about that Clint Eastwood has to... And let's be honest, a movie that not many people before it comes out, because Clint Eastwood had not had a hit in a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was a big, big deal. I mean, you can honestly say this is the first time in a long time the critics were going to actually take him seriously again, um, because he had worn out his well. I mean, everyone had worn out their welcome this summer. I mean, 
it's kind of, I remember talking right. to someone basically saying there are parts of movies that we like, but not, nothing as a whole really stands out. All right. So that's uh, what all of our listeners have in store for them. Uh, hopefully a really entertaining examination of a crappy summer. <laughs> Whatever that is in the background. Um. <laughs> May 1st, 1992. First up. Uh, Folks with Tom Selleck and Don Amici. It's a comedy about Alzheimer's, and I always thought the tagline should have been so funny I forgot to laugh. Uh, I I had forgotten completely about this movie. I mean, like, utterly and completely. You know, it's easy to forget about just about every one of Tom Selleck's movies, but this one just totally... Took me by surprise. Uh, I had to look it like, up. This is a case of like miscasting. Like, like you inherently like on principle you don't object to the premise of okay, it's a dark, dark comedy. Like, where's Papa? Of like, okay, his father is dementia, so he wants to try to kill his father to get the money. Like, okay, that can be like some real dark humor. But Tom Selleck is like the wrong guy. I remember at the time, I think it was a uh, Gene Siskel said, you know. Imagine James Woods in a Tom Selleck role, and then maybe you have like a truly great black comedy. It's like Tom Selleck is does Tom Selleck is not the guy you get for black comedy. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that's, that's very that's true. true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's just it's just it's a poor execution of potentially an interesting idea that just turns tasteless. So. Oh, my God. We're starting out with this. That's what I just can't. you got to forgive me after I take it over. We're starting out with this one. Oh, my God. And then uh, K2. Anyone have any thoughts on K2? I actually saw it once. Totally different from T2 earlier last summer. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I actually saw it. Like, I rented that. I remember renting it. I didn't see it in theaters. And at the time, I haven't seen it since then, but I actually... I remember at the time, like around like 14, 15 years old, liking it, like being surprised that it was actually a decent kind of like man against the elements kind of mountain climbing movie. Like a, it was like a good Michael Bean performance. Haven't seen it since then. I don't know if it holds up, but I actually remember thinking it was not a pretty decent film. And to the point, like I remember when I when I finally saw on TV the the Everest movie, and like uh, which I thought was okay, but I was like, you know. For some reason, I think K2 got here first, and K2 is probably better than Everest. So, that's all I can say. Anyone know anything about Leaving Normal? Is that Christine Lottie? Yeah. Person? Yeah, Christine Lottie. Yeah. That was one of those, yeah, that was that was popular at the time. Um, it was like a it was like a that that became like one of those perennial HBO mid '90s movies. Like it was always on at 2 p.m. on HBO. Huh. You know, so uh, I've never seen it all the way through. Not because not because I didn't think it was bad, it just I had other things to do, like do the dishes. So <laughs> it was the it okay. was trying to capitalize on Thelma and Louise. Um it was yeah. one of those films that definitely tried to capitalize on that. Yeah, to me, uh, all of these, I mean, you know, like, this, these aren't even really summer movies. These are the end of spring movies, because the summer movie, you know, jumps start. It's still Memorial Day, really, it's still Memorial Day at that time. It was, it was. Uh, it doesn't really, to me, you know, these are real, just really just late spring movies, but... And- 
I think the one thing we should probably add for just a little context for our listeners who probably weren't who were probably born in '92 is yeah. that what you know we all may we're not, not talking about here is that uh, what's interesting you know going on in Hollywood and in the news the riots had literally just ended. Mm-hmm. So That's right. Mm-hmm. The LA riots had literally just ended. So you know the movies that were coming out for the first like. But, pretty much for the month of May at least, you know, they were just kind of like anything coming out of Hollywood was just kind of being overshadowed by what had just happened in LA. Yeah. So right, all right. these all these movies are just kinda of like eh, yeah, that's not really talking to how I feel right now. Mhm. The same thing goes for the movie Split Second that also opened up on May first. What is Split Second? <laughs> Actually okay. that was Oh Rucker Howard. That was talking to the people. That movie probably was was talking to the people. He's either eating a sandwich or holding a gun in every scene in the movie. I mean, it was like you couldn't. What is he? What, what is he in the movie? Shooting someone. Was he like a killer butcher or something? Yeah, it was like, I think it, was, it was like trying to capitalize. Remember, he's he's desperately trying to capitalize on any sort of success he's had. Um, it's, it's the Blood of Heroes is a couple of years before this, right? And um, Blind Fury is a couple of years before this. So we're, we're, still on thing, we're still going on the thing where Rutger Howard can still get a movie out in the theater. We're not in straight, we're not in complete straight to video yet. Um, okay. But yeah. this is like one of these movies that opened up and played like, you know, um, well beyond like anywhere like you could walk to in New York City. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is really just... This was, this movie did not. This movie came and went very quick, but he still he could still open up in theaters at this point. But I just remember, I vaguely remember it. Um, but okay, uh, the yeah, highest grosser, high, highest grosser that weekend was Folks, or at least the highest opening gross that weekend was Folks. Jesus Christ! By uh, five hundred thousand dollars, it beat Split Second. Um, oh okay, God. the next Friday uh, saw three releases, and they're all about titties. Uh, there is, uh, it, aren't they? Isn't isn't crisscross the Goldie Hawn thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she's playing, she's playing a she's playing a uh, waitress at a topless bar, but I don't think you get to see her topless, which is kind of strange. But so, uh, uh, bottomless, bottomless. I remember bo- bottomless. Uh, okay, but uh, um, it's it's not a bad movie. It's it's sort of a uh, it's a little dull. But it's really about her her son and and how he feels kind of uh, left behind uh, because she's spending so much time at work. As, and, as, uh, we'll, as we'll note later on will, in the summer, we'll note another film. This was like, kind of like the last hurrah of Goldie Hawn. So we got these we got two movies from Goldie that summer, and we were we were kind of getting you know let's see both sides of Goldie, serious yeah, in the comedy, I mean, and so we were getting we got and also. Uh, that summer and then in the fall we were getting we we're gonna get both sides of Kurt Russell. We get we get the action serious Kurt Russell in the fall and people, I mean in the summer and then in the fall we got comedy Sir, uh, Kurt Russell with the the one and only Captain Ron. So like right. it's like their last big summer together. So. Yeah. Well, anyway, Criss Cross Criss Cross is not a not a terrible movie. It's Chris Menjes, uh who's uh, the cinematographer who t- turned director. Uh, and uh, it's uh, you know there's uh, Arliss Howard is in it, and uh, I don't I don't remember who's the who the kid is, David Arnott, uh, and uh, 
and Keith Carradine. Yeah, it's moments. not bad. Yeah, I remember we're trying. It's serious, Goldie. I mean, it's not. It's not a comedy. I mean, it's, they're trying to really go back to like Sugarland Express kind of Goldie Hawn here. I mean, uh, Poison Ivy. Uh, oh. Ah, here we go. All right. Now, this is what this is a classic. What they call a guilty pleasure, because this you cannot really defend this film on like tasteful criteria, but as a trashy, you know, trashy B movie or even a trashy D movie, this is like like this is this is some good stuff. Yeah, this is the bad girl. This is Drew Barrymore's bad girl phase. I mean, yeah. Coming from New Line Home Video, a steamier, deadlier hand that rocks the cradle. Hi. What's your name? Ivy. It starts as a friendship. Everybody hates me. Oh, well, everybody hates me, too. No. Dad, she's my best friend. It becomes a fatal attraction for everybody. Slash there is. Oh, Ivy, this is my mom, Georgie. Till death. Because Ivy didn't just want a friend, she wanted everything. So beautiful. I hope that when I die, I'll have owned a sports car, had a family, a home. And she'd do anything to get it. Hello, Mr. Cooper. Care for anything? Because Ivy is beautiful to look at, but deadly to the touch. Doing in my mom's car? I'm sorry. It will never happen again. I just can't. You already did. Remember last night? Last night? Last night? In its national theatrical release, Poison Ivy got tremendous exposure. Wall Street Journal called it seductive and erotic. <sighs> oh my God! Are you accusing me? Rolling Stone said that Drew Barrymore rivals Sharon Stone in indulging basic instincts. Peter Travers said it was wickedly erotic, a kinky spellbinder. Quietly sinister, said Janet Maslin. <laughs> Starring Drew Barrymore, the former child star of E.T., Firestarter, and Irreconcilable Differences in a sultry and breakthrough performance with Sarah Gilbert of TV's Roseanne in her theatrical debut. Cheryl Ladd of Millennium and Charlie's Angels, and Tom Skerritt of Steel Magnolias, Alien, and Top Gun. Poison Ivy, available in rated and unrated versions. Early DiCaprio. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. You know, invented for this movie, you know? Mm-hmm. Now what? Early DiCaprio. Yeah. yeah, he had a very small, very big part. Small he played, part. Played like a delinquent kid, you know, in, mm. one of, in a couple of scenes. Yeah, he don't this, talk about. This was about the time period where he was on that TV show, right? And he was on yeah, he was growing on, he was on the last last season of Growing Pains. Right. Yeah, this is whenever they do those career retrospectives, they they purposely don't bring up. <laughs> 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 Uh, Apparently, Leonardo DiCaprio's career of course, began with Gilbert Grape. You know, there's some, you know, there's some purist out there that thinks he was never better than Poison Ivy. Yeah, yeah. there's always that one guy. <laughs> That's when he was hungry. That's when he was hungry. Also, on May eighth, Wild Orchid two, two thousand 
Two Shades of Blue. Oh, uh, <laughs> the no. death knell. Oh, who, who is the chicken? Death was was Mickey Rourke still in this? Yes. Okay. Uh, no. Uh, actually, no. Okay. No, he was not in Wild Orchid 2. So even Mickey was like, you know what? I, I have too much self-respect. I'm not doing <laughs> Well, he was, wasn't he boxing? He was full blown boxing at this point. I mean, he was boxing, and uh, he was preparing. In, uh, no, well, he had just done White Sands, which he was actually pretty good in, like a couple of months earlier. The Roger Donaldson, yeah, Will right. Fr- that was he was actually movie. really he was good in that. Uh, but yeah, he knew better not even to do Wild Orchid Two, Two Shades of Blue. Cool. So yeah, there you go. Okay, May thirteenth. Was the water dance the uh, drama with the paraplegics with uh, mm-hmm. Helen Hunt and Eric Stoltz? This is, this is actually one of the highlights of the summer. This this, really you, you're very right. Absolutely. It's one of the highlights of the summer, and this was like uh, Wesley. Wesley Snipes was coming off a of White Man Can't Jump and Jungle Fever, New Jack City. And he took this supporting role to show some more range. Great showcase for Eric Stoltz. Uh, one of my favorite Helen Hunts. Uh, performances. William Forsyth, like before he became like Rob Zombie's, you know, alter ego. Like William Forsyth <laughs> showed, showed some range in between this and American Me. Uh, Water dances, like that's like a little. That's like that's a lost indie gym right there. What's uh? Whatever happened to Eric Stoltz? Oh, uh, he was he's done sci-fi he's like, stuff. That's sci-fi indie stuff. He's still doing the sci-fi indie yeah. stuff. Yeah. Oh. All right. Yeah, I I remember liking the water dance. I mean, it wasn't, you know, I don't consider it any kind of unsung American classic, but it's a good little it's a good little drama. Mm-hmm. Um, May fifteenth. Now, this is an interesting story. Lethal Weapon three. Uh, I live in Lakeland. And there's a, uh, there was a building in Orlando, which is about 45 minutes away, that they were going to demolish. And uh, the makers of Lethal Weapon 3 said, hey, can we film it? Can we demolish it for the movie? Uh, and so that's, they came over here and shot the opening scene of uh, Lethal Weapon 3 where they, you know, this big building blows up. And, uh, you know, seeing Orlando on screen was about the only exciting thing about uh, watching Lethal Weapon uh- 3. So for whatever I'm, reason I'm, for me, hang on, you can you can defend it. For whatever reason for me, uh, Lethal Weapon Three feels like the most uh, uh, lifeless of of all the Lethal Weapon movies. Uh, and this is coming from me, who likes Number Four. Well, I'm thinking we should cut the blue wire. Hey, wait! What? That's not what I'm thinking. What do you think? Maybe the red? No, no. I'm, I'm thinking that it's eight minutes and 42 seconds. We can go upstairs, wait for the bomb squad, and have a cappuccino. I'm cutting the red wire, okay? Help! Who? Oh. What? A minute ago, you said blue. Oh. Nearly a catastrophe, huh? I'm cutting the wire. Snip. See? All done. Rog. Grab 
Lethal Weapon 3. Right. I, I, I know I'm going to be the one the one lone defender of Lethal Weapon 3 on this panel, so I'll just say that uh, I defend it. Obviously, it is not in the it is not in the league of one and two, uh, but I do think it's a good movie. It's a, I mean, it is. It's kind of the for me. I hold it up as how do you define the summer of '92? I hold up Lethal Weapon two, Lethal Weapon three. It is a disposable, well made, uh, in you know, piece of product entry into a series that gets the job done. Um, it's, it's, it's what it does. Lethal Weapon 2 is the same thing as Lethal Weapon 3, although, but there's a little extra in Lethal Weapon 2. You don't, you, you can't really put your finger on it, but Lethal Weapon 2 goes a little extra mile. Lethal Weapon 3 does not. So it just gets the job done. Um, they, I, and so having I, I, just I, rewatched I, it, yeah. <laughs> having just rewatched it, I thought it was a complete waste of time, just like the first one was. The second one was a little bit better. Uh, it's really the only one in the series that I like. Uh, I thought that the uh, the comedy in it, which is mostly comedy, uh, it's not even... The action is secondary to the comedy. Um, it feels, uh, feels badly... Uh, Badly improvised. Doesn't really feel like it's really written. Uh, there's a, like, for instance, the whole the whole scene in the first the the whole thing in the first scene where they're they're uh, they're faced with you know defusing a bomb, and there's that boring cliched uh, joke of which which thing are we gonna cut the red wire, wire or the blue wire. And it's so boring, I can't even stand it. And uh, and the writing isn't even there. There's like no, there's there's no funny, really funny back and forth that you know a five year old couldn't come up with. I, I will. This is my defense, and I will point this out. And usually, I'll get a grudging acknowledgement of this. Okay, if we can acknowledge that Lethal Weapon Two, uh, that was that movie was about Mel Gibson. You know, you know, he gets mad. They kill. He finds out who killed his wife. They kill his girlfriend, and he gets mad. And and the last act of *Lethal Weapon 2* is Mad Mel killing everyone in Africa, killing all the Af- uh, African racists. Okay, so that's that's the arc of *Lethal Weapon 2*. *Lethal Weapon 3*. The best stuff in it is Danny Glover when he mm-hmm. when he, yeah. he he shoots yeah. a kid on you know in defense. And he goes through a crisis of conscience, and he gets mad, and he starts going around and taking, you know, kicking ass, taking names, because he wants to get the guns off the street. That's the stuff in the movie that really gives it its charge, and you know, that's the stuff I do like in the movie. The scene on the boat between the two of them—that's a well done dramatic scene. So that's mm. the stuff that I grab it, I, I grasp onto when I watch *Lethal Weapon* three. So it's that stuff. I- I just didn't. I, I didn't find it compelling at all. Uh, but that's the way I felt about the entire say, series. And, and on uh, and once again, I bring this up real quick on the on the cultural context front. This film was like, uh, you know, this was just going to be a big time summer release. Everyone's going to go see it. No one was going to, you know, we we're all going to see it. We're going to have our popcorn. We're all going to enjoy it and forget about it two two hours after we finish seeing it. But coming being released literally two weeks, three weeks after the riots. Uh, this was a big hot button movie for a moment mm-hmm. because here was 
this movie where we had two L.A. cops, granted, innerly racially mixed cops, uh, as heroes. And it, it was just something like, you know what? I really am not in the mood to see this right now. That was very yeah. true. That was yeah, a that's big, interesting. big controversy. Yeah. You know what? Uh, what I and I, I, you know, you know, I rank them for me for my personal favorites: two, one, four, three. Uh, three doesn't even it doesn't even have a very good villain. Um, I acknowledge that. Uh, yeah. Well, and also, uh, there's something about Danny Glover, and this is Danny Glover through all the Lethal Weapon movies. There's something about him that really annoys me, and he will he will like narrate what he's doing as he's doing it. Yeah. Like the first <laughs> lethal weapon. And the first lethal weapon, he looks up and he sees a video cassette, and he's like, "Oh, what is this? Oh, let me put this in the machine. Let me press play. What am I looking at?" And it's showing what it goes. <laughs> it's like it's like the most unnecessary exposition <laughs> that informs a lot of his performance. It's just it's befuddling to me, but anyway. It doesn't feel uh, like okay. they have have the writers have anything for him, so they just have him doing that. Well, <laughs> yeah. Lethal, Weapon, Lethal Weapon Two, they give him the, it's like one of the greatest ADR lines ever, and it, to explain the whole plot, when literally they have Danny Glover say in voiceover, he's like, "Riggs, I looked it up. The album of art is not a it's not a woman, it's a ship. It came in from Africa with all this money, and it's going out tonight." And literally, they just gave like they put Danny Glover in a booth. Like, hey, you got to read these five lines because we got to tell the audience why y'all are going to the docks. And like, you know, we, yeah. we can't and we can't have Mel do it because Mel's pissed throughout the whole movie. So we need you to do the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Uh, May twenty second. Uh, now this is a movie that still lives in conversation today. Uh, so it ha- <clears throat> it has it has some resonance <clears throat> in terms of. Uh, Second, uh, you know, giving it a second look and trying to reassess it and its defenders and that kind of thing. And that's Alien 3, which was pretty mm. widely derided at the time of its release. But since David Fincher's Star Rose, people have been reassessing it and claiming it as an undersung masterpiece. And Dean, <laughs> you say that's a bunch of bullshit, I bet. <laughs> it, it is. And I I did rewatch it yesterday. And uh, I, I still feel the same way about it. It's drab. It's uh, it feels it's two hours and thirty minutes, but it feels like it's about five hours long. Uh, you can't. There's uh, even even Ripley, even uh, Sigourney Weaver's performance feels kind of distant and kind of phoned in. Um, she never really gets to take charge. Um, uh, except she takes charge of her own destiny, I guess. But uh, uh, the the prisoners in the on the prisoner planet that she's on that she's landed on uh, uh, are indistinguishable from one another, except for Charles S. Dutton and uh, and maybe. Uh, Maybe the other guy that the Charles the, Dance. I mean Charles Dance before he's, well, Charles he's not, he doesn't Dance. have much of a role. He doesn't have much of a role, but um. <laughs> yeah, he gets he gets dispatched pretty quickly. But uh, and and then there's the guy that was uh, the British guy that uh, played uh, the 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 pub denizen uh, that tells the the crazy joke in um, 
American Werewolf in London. I, I don't know that actor's name, but he he makes a little bit of an impression early on. But he's dispatched as well, uh, and uh, it, you know it's got it's got an incessant music score that's that's very irritating. Uh, just and then you look at like the you look at the visual design of the first two. Uh, they're uh, they're distinctive. They're colorful. There's great art direction. And this one, because it's a prison planet, I guess they uh, they didn't sink a lot of money into it, so it looks it looks I guess suitably suitably run down. But uh, it's not what we go to alien movies for, uh, or we didn't you know then at least. And uh, it, it just it, uh, you know even. Even the alien attacks, which since they have you know twenty five people to since the alien has twenty five people to eat uh there's a lot of them, and they get very dull too uh even even it even though they they made the alien into some kind of four legged beast that was running around like a like a crazy dog or something uh they uh, uh I guess they enlivened it in that way but uh, and there's some interesting special effects in it here and there, but uh, generally it's just a big blah. Oh, 800 hours, prisoner Murphy, through carelessness on his part, was found dead in vent shaft 17. He seems to have been sucked into a ventilator. <laughs> At about 2100 hours, prisoner Gollick reappeared in a deranged state. Prisoners Boggs and Reigns are missing. There seems to be a good chance that they have met with foul play at the hands of Prisoner Gollick. We need to organize and send out a search party. Volunteers will be appreciated. I think it's fair to say that our smoothly running facility has suddenly developed a few problems. I can only hope we are able to all pull together over the next few days until the rescue team arrives for Lieutenant Ripley. It's here. You got Clemens. Stop this radiant one. I'm Stop telling it. you. It's here. Mr. and get that foolish woman back to the infirmary. I, I remember seeing at the time, I remember at the time being in the minority saying this movie is flawed, uh, but this movie, it does work, but no one's going to like it. I remember even thinking that, you know, I'm like 14 years old and I realized this is a good movie, but no one's going to like this. Because frankly, that movie should not, there should be even Alien Covenant, you know, all these other ones, you know, whatever. There After Aliens, there should be no other Alien movies. That's no, alien no Alien Resurrection, no Alien 3. No oh, alien no, Resurrection. I agree. I agree yeah. 100%. So, because Aliens brings the story to a natural conclusion. It does. So already you're dealing with that handicap. So dealing with that handicap, because basically Alien 3 from the first scene shatters, you know, the happy ending of Aliens. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Newt is, mm-hmm. Newt is dead, and 
Hicks is dead. Bishop is, yes. you know, just a talking head. So it shatters your childhood innocence of aliens. And that's kind of what I got off on when I first saw it. The scene where Ripley does the autopsy on Newt is gut-wrenching. Uh, it has the best death in any of the alien movies, including the Prometheus and Covenant, and that is Charles S. Dutton. He has the best death in any alien movie ever. Uh, really? And, why is that? Because he just I get I get I just love the showdown between him and the alien. Yeah, he, he at least challenges the creature. I, I love the showdown. I love he's balls. yelling at the alien. Yeah, that is just it's just an awesome death sequence. Um, the look of the Come film on, is good. It, it I mean, has that's, some that's, a, that's a better death than the alien popping out of John Hurt's stomach at the dinner table. I mean, that's Come not on. better than that. <laughs> chime in when Aaron is done. I want to chime uh, in about this. That might be okay. That you know that might be the close, the the equivalent. And also, um, I guess I I do like the I do like Elliot Goldenthal's score. I I I divide the the first four Alien movies, which is really kind of the only ones I really consider the Alien movies. I, I I put them I put them in like music categories. The first Alien is kind of the prog rock uh, edition. James Cameron's is the heavy metal rock and roll mm-hmm. ed- uh, edition. This Alien 2 is through and through the grunge uh, album, with Alien Resurrection is the techno album. And so I look at it that way. And mm. As a grunge record, Alien 3 is, is grunge through and through. And yeah. it works. It, it is obviously not David Fincher's best movie, to the point David Fincher doesn't even acknowledge it. Um uh, but I don't but think I've never. There. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think Leo was never better the... than Poison Ivy, right. and James Cameron, and, and David Fincher's best it, movie is Alien Three. Yeah. Oh, God, no, no, I, no! But it sets the stage that there are great things that come from Fincher. But I think, as far as Fincher is concerned, what it says is he is still one of the luckiest people working in movies today he never really had to struggle he he start i mean he really you know this is to have this as your first feature film regardless of the box office or anything is is astounding um the movie has a problem and i and i think aaron hits on it when you kill off two beloved characters right away that's not good also having them on a prison planet and where sigourney weaver is the only woman that's a cop-out. I'm sorry. The prison plan is a cop-out. Uh, I mean, we get this a couple of years later with no escape. Um, no, this, is, this, this movie is just a cop-out from the get-go. Um, and it just doesn't work. I'm sorry. Um, and then the, you know, we see that at the end of this one, um, we, get, we get a fourth one. A French, we get a French alien movie. Um, many years later, Resurrection. Um, and then you think that's going to be the end of it. No, they keep coming back and coming back like the... No, but this movie was always just... And then this whole idea that Neil Blomkamp was going to make it uh, the proper Alien 3. Um, a couple of that. Thankfully, that's dead in the water. Um, maybe Chappie killed that finally. Um, but, you know... You know I, think that, I, think that Dave, I think that David Fincher probably did the best he could uh, under yeah. the circumstances. We... Um, and I, I, I don't put the blame necessarily at, at his feet because 
Oh no. I mean, he was under and, and there were there were a lot of there were a lot of cooks in that kitchen and I'm sure everybody was frightened about the direction it was taking to begin with and I think Fincher yeah, works best war. when he's a, when when he's able to make his movie, you know, which he was yeah. able to do well, with seven. If anyone it does let me just say this. It does feel like you mentioned Vincent Ward who still gets the story credit on the movie. Yeah. Uh, it does feel like the movie was taken away from from Vincent Ward, who may have shot the first, you know, ten or fifteen minutes of it and and uh and then given to uh to Fincher to uh to fix. Uh yeah. because it, it it has a kind of a weird dreamy quality in the first minutes that kind of matches Vincent Ward's uh you know, mm-hmm. modus operandi, but uh, but uh, you know, it, it does feel like a movie that's that they're desperately trying to save. You yeah, know. If anyone, like, just as a side note, if anyone has ever seen the um, the definitive like making of documentary on the uh, Alien Quadrilogy box set, it's kind of uh, it's pretty candid in like what went wrong and. The literally everyone in the you know David Fincher obviously did not participate in the documentary, but it's kind of it's it's the unspoken joke that runs throughout that whole documentary is like, well, if we knew it was going to be David Fincher, we would have let him do whatever he wanted. It's literally right. the unspoken thing that goes through the whole making of retrospective right. documentaries. Like, well, if we knew it was going to be David Fincher, we would have we wouldn't have interfered, but we didn't know it was David Fincher, uh, so we we had ideas, and that's kind of like the the best thing about that documentary. I, I'm sure he thought it was a good a big break, and he probably regretted the environment in which he was forced to work as soon as he signed on. But you mm-hmm. think this is a guy that came from commercials and music videos? He has a real the daring visual style uh and he's in charge of a franchise that's a big popular money maker and uh people can put the blame at his feet when it fails mm-hmm. so the fact that he rebounded was uh, uh by being able to make a true uh venture film was is good it's it's good for cinema that yeah. story ended up that way yeah okay yeah. uh also also on May 22nd Alien 3 by the way made a total of uh, just under $55 million at the U.S. box office. It was budgeted at 55 as well. Uh, Encino Man also opened on May 22nd. Mm. Okay. Well, the arrival of Brendan Counter-programming. Counter-programming. The arrival of Brendan Fraser. I mean... Well, that basically uh, just was... Um... You know, they thought they probably had a bigger hit than it came out. To. I mean, it obviously did a little money, and it's a cult film. But basically, they thought they had a, a you know, they thought they were going to cash in on the Wayne's World audience because Wayne's World had just like four months earlier right. blew up. And you know, frankly, you know, audiences are smarter than studios probably give them credit for sometimes. And that they're like, no, we just we saw the good version of this. We don't need to see the bad version of this. So that was that was what Encino Man was. Okay, and then also on that weekend, a huge Hollywood epic uh, that uh, kind of tanked. Uh, I mean, it made fifty-eight million, I think, domestically, and that's Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman and Ron Howard's Far and Away. I will say this about Far and Away: uh, it's got a great score. Like if you listen uh-huh. to that John Williams score, oh my God, the the melodies in that score are just jaw-dropping. But uh, 
the movie's kind of eh. I mean, there's moments of splendor, but as a whole, it's the. Eh. I I like. I remember at the time I liked it. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it's a very square, corny movie. Uh, that's all it is. It's a square, corny movie. It's the kind of movie that you know the phrase is the phrase is appropriate. They don't make them like that anymore, and there's probably a good reason why they don't. Um, uh, but at the time, you know, I, I thought it was fine. Uh, I've seen it since then, and it's watchable. Uh, the real star of it is actually Nicole Kidman. She's really, really good in that movie. Um, and the the climax, the land rush, the last act of the movie, I mean, there is a reason why that movie was shot in 70 millimeter, and that sequence is mm-hmm. amazing. So. Yeah. Not for me. <laughs> Not for me. I get uh, I get irritated by the sort of the continual, uh, uh, and it still goes on today. The continual romanticizing, romanticizing of the uh, the Irish troubles and the people and so forth and the little flute sounds that are on the soundtracks and everything and just. Uh, uh, I just can't stand it. I, I, you know, it's it's so cornball. I I, I can't watch them. And uh, far and away is <clears throat> something that I, I would never rewatch again. Uh, and sorry, <laughs> I don't care what's good in it. Uh, I don't care if it has a score or, or uh, Nicole Kidman in it. I would never rewatch it again. Too horrible. Okay, May 29th. <laughs> Tell us how you really feel. Uh, exactly. Uh, May 29th, uh, a big sleeper hit of the summer was Sister Act, Whoopi Goldberg. Uh, everybody went crazy about this uh Yeah, this, this, act, this um, I stand by this film. This film actually does, it does work. It's a, it's one of those, it's a, you know, this is when Touchstone was really in their groove. And mm-hmm. uh, this is a good, Vehicle. It's a good whoopee vehicle. It's a good. It's a good. It's a good high high concept summer comedy. Uh, it works, um, and it's just a lot of fun. Um, it's a fun movie. It, uh, it was a fun yeah. PG movie. So yeah, I I'm at time I liked it a lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, I I will I will go along with Aaron on this. I think uh, I think it's still a. <clears throat> I haven't watched it in many years, but. Um, yeah, I think it's a good whoopee uh, vehicle, uh, and also I, I really like the, the things that really make it work are the are the supporting performances, you know, of all the other nuns, you know, Kathy Najimy and uh, Mary Wicks and so forth. Uh, Maggie they, Smith. Yeah, Maggie Smith as well. Uh, the, they're they're all superb in it, and and uh, I even I, I I like the music too. I think the music is one of the things that makes it work, and uh, those adaptations of those songs really are good. You know, I don't think they needed to make you know Sister Act two, but uh, I understand why they did it. Uh, but uh, that's all right. It's it's still a, it's it's a, it's a pleasant enough movie. And I know Jamie would agree with me. This contains top three of all time of Harvey Keitel's best performances. <laughs> Definitely one of his most popular. I mean, if you think about it, one of the more popular things that he's in. I so. forgot this he was is, in it. This is one of Jamie's yeah, favorite Harvey. Ke- this, this is one of Jamie's favorite Harvey Keitel performances. I mean, it was well, so good he forgot know, Harvey Keitel was in it. 
it, yeah, it, it, you know, and the and for me, the best Harvey Keitel performance is uh, the one that I forget Harvey Keitel's in it. Uh, so, what is one about Harvey uh, Keitel you don't like? I, I don't get it. Yeah, I don't get. I don't think either, he's a good actor. Uh, June fifth. Um, what's class act? Oh, you don't know class act? Cla- oh. Dude. Kid and play, kid right? Play. Kid and play. Kid, kid and play. Yeah. Yes, kid and play. Oh my god! It's kid and play. Do trading places in high school? Yeah, they, like uh, Prince and the Popper or something. Yeah, they uh, they switch places. They get their uh, they get their uh, their class schedules uh, switched. So uh, kid is the straight A student. Play is the juvenile delinquent, and they get their class schedules switched, and so. Kids starts taking play class. Play starts taking kids classes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Then I told you at the beginning that this was kind of one of those muted summers. So they, this is. Well, this I wouldn't know how. This, play. this was not. This is not. This was you know the the, the glory of house party was a distant past. Was in a distant past. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was thinking about this movie, which I haven't seen. But uh, is the is the hip hop comedy dead? I mean, like there used to be a lot of hip hop comedies, you know, like uh, How High or uh, you know Disorderlies or Who's the Man or. But these, you know, are, you're, these are from like the, you're talking about the late eighties, early nineties movies. Fear, right? of, fear of a black high, hat, you know. Yeah, fear of a black hat, early nineties. How high? Well, I mean, is he, it's 2001, well, I think. So, well, Chris Rock did top five, so I mean, you still get a yeah, no, comedy but, now. Yeah, I mean, you still was that a hip hop I mean, comedy though? I mean, I mean, it's all no. I mean, it's hip hop through and through. I mean, it's, that's a kind of. Did it have some stars in it that were hip hop stars? Because I, 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 yeah, I, mean, I remember Chris had, was Chris in it, had but. everyone. In it. I mean, you, it's not like the old days where you know if you were a hip hop star, you got a movie deal. So I mean that that part is over, that part is over. Where you that, really get I a, guess that's what I'm asking is is yeah, is, think, is, is uh, are are we going to be seeing a Kendrick Lamar movie or a uh, or a uh, Kanye West movie? I'm surprised that hasn't happened. Uh, I'd love to see the. You would think, but it's hard. It's hard to get that. You know, this goes back to the whole thing. You know. Do they, first of all, do they want to make movies? They probably say yes and no. I mean, um, I think the next big thing in that department that's going to happen would be if they ever make the fourth Friday movie, which there's been, they've been talking about off and on for years, but that is possible that I think it's called, would be called Last Friday. And that would be like the, that would, I think, be the final statement on that. But that would be the next of those movies, I would think. I would posit. Well, it's actually. I mean, I mean it's actually a, a kind of like a trend that goes beyond hip hop. Uh, you know, it, it probably goes back to Sinatra's days. But, but even something, the more prominent examples would be something like Prince, where he knew that mounting a movie about himself through Purple Rain was a major part of cementing his persona and making him a superstar. Uh, all the way up to somebody like Eminem, who did much the same with Eight Mile with Curtis Hanson. Mm-hmm. And Eminem is smart. He's like, you know, I don't, I don't need to make another movie. I really don't. He, and he's right. He does not need Eminem. Does not need another movie. Right. He has one perfect. He has one perfect movie to his resume. 
So yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't. I mean, I would posit. I would posit that the issue. I would posit that the issue is 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 that hip hop is not as fun as it was uh, back in the nineties and the two well, thousands. It's a lot more serious. It deals with a lot more serious issues that are facing the black community. Uh, and uh, you know, back then, you know, that kind of um, that kind of uh, hip hop, uh, serious hip hop, was relegated to uh, things that didn't sell, things like Public Enemy and and KRS-One. But uh, uh, that that sort of serious hip hop has really um, taken over the genre, I think. To to a certain extent, and uh, there's no more fun hip hop uh, figures like, uh, well, even Run DMC, you know, is sort of fun, and and uh, you know the Fat Boys and so forth. So there's there's, uh, there's no there's no comedy in hip hop anymore, and that's why they're right. not being made. Right, but also other things that you know we're talking about. Uh, Eminem, well, remember, um, Fifty Cent made a movie. A really odd movie, yeah. Jim Sheridan of all people directed, and that was that just didn't work. <laughs> yeah. um, get Richard Die trying, so I mean, you could also point some of it there. Um, for everything that works, there's a lot of copies that don't work. Yeah, right. Okay, you won't be you won't be seeing uh, Con- Kanye doing Baps too anytime soon. <laughs> okay, yeah, but maybe Martin uh, Landau. Well, a, a lot of conversation <laughs> around uh, class acts. That's a uh, Surprising. Okay, also on that day, June 5th, Patriot Games. Harrison Ford replaces Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan, and uh, this was his first effort in that franchise, right? Yeah. Um, I'm kind of, I mean, it's fine. Once again, you know, you're like, oh, Harrison Ford, I mean, new Jack Ryan movie, and it, it's like the Lethal Weapon movie and a couple of these other movies. It gets the job done. It doesn't do anything new, doesn't add anything new. There's this idea of revenge being a new motive, but they don't really go into that. Right. And all I remember of Patriot Games, I mean, really, I mean, I I haven't seen it since it came out. So I've seen right. a piece of it on TV, and I like, you know, what I see, but I'm a, I'm more of a clear and present danger fan. Uh, but Patriot Games, I remember the Highway Chase was good, and, you know, and the uh, – you know the battle on the boat at the end was fun, but other than that, it, it does, it doesn't have, to, at least for me anyway, it didn't have the same resonance that Red October did when that came out two years earlier. Right. So, it's it's dull. Jack it's, Ryan, but it's just not. How do we say it? It's just not. It's also the material too. I mean, let's not. Um, you know, someone. You know, I, the, know, I, mean, you know, I guess. The IRA isn't is in that in that vein the way they're making it, and you know let's be honest, it's got a great cast. Sean Bean um, is in it. Um, there's a lot of Patrick Bergen I think to, is also in it. To, to pick up to pick up what Dean was saying, I'm tired of every Irish movie having Sean Bean in it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's, that's true. Yeah, <laughs> that I mean, is at the bad time, thing. it seems that at the time it does seem like that. Like, yeah. Oh, it's an IRA movie. Oh, they got where's Sean Bean? Like, we got to have him in it, yeah. Well, you had better. a better IRA movie come out later that year, so yeah, and, and I think, uh, you know, and the other thing about Patriot, I mean, and the surprise is Philip Noyce, he can do some action. And yeah. it's interesting, you know, in a couple of years when we talk about Clear and Present Danger, Summer 94, uh, for some reason that one does work, and Philip Noyce, like, gets that one right. 
Right. Uh, the Patriot Games just doesn't uh, doesn't uh, cut it. See, Patriot Games is kind of just a dull sort of revenge movie. That's all it is. Yeah. It's just really er, everything about it is just setting up the the the, the uh, clashes between um, Sean Bean and uh, and Harrison Ford. So it's, right. what is interesting, you know, as a footnote, I will say that you know five years later, The Devil's Own is a far better movie uh, dealing with similar topic and themes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's a far, you know, obviously a more troubled production. But I mean, I did rewatch The Devil's Own a couple of weeks ago, and you know, you know, it's been like 20 years, and you know, removed from all the controversy and the, the troubled production on that movie, The Devil's Own is surprisingly a really good movie in dealing with, you know, better than than Patriot Games. Okay. I always find the IRA. I always find I should say this. I always find IRA related movies to be rather confusing. I don't think that they uh they're able to to you know, back in the nineties I don't think that they were able to uh transmit the actual conflict between the two sides. Uh it, it well, became very, favorite, very confusing. My favorite line I just I don't know when you move on, Jamie. My favorite line in Blown Away with Tommy Lee Jones is uh he was too crazy for the IRA. Uh so that's yeah. how they deal with the IRA and blown away. It's like, oh, he was too crazy I, even for the IRA. I so, think it's a question also of, you know, you're dealing with it from a, an American standpoint. I think it's usually best uh, the Irish did this, when it was their story, tackled this much better. They understood it much better. Yes. Um, or the United Kingdom. I think you're dealing with a, you know, let's be very honest, a Tom Clancy um, book about the IRA. The IRA is substitutes basically for the Russians. Let's, let's yes. not kid ourselves. This is at a yeah. time in in Hollywood where you know that well, we, they, we don't have the Russians to pick as a villain. We need to pick new villains to you get like drug dealers, the IRA, terrorists, that sort of thing. Before it would become really in vogue in the next century. Um, so we're we're in that phase with this movie right now. Okay. now June twelfth is uh, okay. That's enough. June twelfth, <laughs> House Sitter, Goldie Hawn and Steve Martin and Dana Wells Delaney. I, oh, okay. there you there's go. The other Goldie, there's another Goldie film. No, so there's three Goldie films. There's, there's three Goldie Summer films. of Goldie. Summer of Goldie. It once again, you know, it's a it's a comedy that gets the job done. There is a that that final um, act of the movie where they're putting on the big party for their in-laws for each for their parents, and she she finds these couple to play her parents. Uh, that is some very funny, uh, very funny sustained slapstick comedy, mistaken identity stuff. There is some really good stuff in there. But, you know, once again, it's one of those comedies that gets the job done, but it doesn't go that extra mile. When you say it gets the job done, what does that mean? I mean, I mean, it's a B. It, it's a good movie. It's a B. It's, I mean, is it, uh, is it a class? Is it All of Me or Man with Two Brains or Roxanne? No. Is huh. it Overboard or Seems Like Old Times or Private Benjamin? But what no. is the job? I the there. job is to I, make us. The job is to keep us in our seats until until it's over. Dean, if you cannot tell the difference between a Steve Martin film like All of Me, the quality of an All of Me, versus the quality of which a house gets theater, the job done. Well, obviously <laughs> they both get the job done, but All of Me is obviously 
a great film where House Sitters just a good, competent piece of filmmaking. I guess what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying is I I don't I you know my memories of House Sitter, which are long ago, (laughs) is that it was it was painful to sit through. It wasn't funny. And it doesn't get the job done. There's nothing painful. That's where I guess we disagree. There's nothing painful about House Sitter. Frank Oz, a good filmmaker. Steve and Martin maybe so, but he still makes and, he still makes some bad movies occasionally. I mean, but so that's an incompetently made about House Sitter. It's it's a funny movie. It's a cute movie. It's not a great movie. It doesn't it's a Friday explode. Night of the yeah. That what I mean, I think that's I mean, it's what I use too. It's a Friday night from the Friday or Saturday night the movies where you're done with work or school for the week or whatever. And hey, yeah. this is how we're gonna, you know, it's decent. It's not the world's greatest. I can't change anything. But hey, that's you know what? Are there worse ways to spend ninety minutes or two hours? That's okay. How I think, that's what I think you mean. <laughs> I know I couldn't sit through it again. Yeah, I thought it was cute, and I really did like. The man that played uh, what's the actor that played Steve Martin's father? Uh, I thought he oh. was really good in it. Um, and they they have that they have that scene that scene where he pretends to sing to him and the father gets Donald all choked Moffitt. up. And, yeah, I, thought I think he was really good I think in you're it. right. Yeah, yeah, Donald Moffat. Yeah. Uh, and you know, to make an incredibly sexist comment, uh, man, Goldie Hawn in the first section of that movie wearing those blue jeans. It was amazing. Yeah. Like, yeah. Okay. Uh, also on June 12th, uh, and that was anything but painful to watch for me, Dean. Uh, <laughs> June 12th. <laughs> uh, also on June 12th, Iron Eagle 3 Aces. Do we need to talk about this or no? Okay, well, see, see Dean, now that's painful. <laughs> <laughs> well, I will admit that given the choice between the two, I would pay for a house sitter, but uh, I probably wouldn't have gone to the movies that weekend. And yeah, I mean, really didn't. You, <laughs> I, yeah, they kept going with these. Lou Gossip Jr. is in there, right? He's I still so. playing in these, right? They still keep killing them off, but he still manages to find a parachute. So, yeah. Okay, June 18th. Okay, I don't think June we need 18th. to talk this about this. This is a big one. Um, Bat- Batman Returns, the follow-up to Tim Burton's original. Uh, and I, I will say, you know, and I have returned to this movie in recent uh, years. Uh, it, it's it, it's not a great film for me, but I think it does contain. The, the best scene of either of the Burton Batman movies, and that's when they both, he and Catwoman, they both realize the other's identity while they're dancing. Mm-hmm. And that that moment, I thought, got to the heart of the kind of duality that Burton was after more than anything in any of the two movies combined. I'd agree uh, with that. There's a great that. movie in Batman Returns, but... And, you know, this is kind of blasphemous for some people, but Christopher Walken gets in the way. You need to delete Chris Walken from that movie and make that a three, a triangle instead of a quadrangle. You make that a Batman, Penguin, Catwoman movie. Uh, that's the great movie in Batman Returns. Christopher Walken served. I disagree no with that. I, dis- I actually think he got rid of Danny DeVito. And I actually think it was just made about the Catwoman and, and, um, 
Batman. That's that's where the movie comes to life, as Damien was saying. The Penguin is overboard. I think the Penguin stuff is overboard. I actually think Christopher Walken... Because i got to tell you something, guys. Before this movie, a lot of people, you know, like Gen X everything, are not that familiar as I would find out who Christopher Walken was at the time. Um, so having him in a high-profile movie like this... I mean, remember, what are we getting before this? McBain... Um, you know, in films like that, he's not. You know, King of New York is one of the like high points, but he's actually very good in this movie. Um, you know, I I actually prefer his villain as opposed to Devito's. I think Devito's trying to top Nicholson in the worst possible way. Um, so, but I think this movie shines when it's Keaton and Keaton and Pfeiffer on screen. I don't. I just. I think it's it's magnificent. Um, when they're yeah. not, it's the movie, I think, is a slog. There's a big, comfy California king over in bedding. What do you say? We take off our costumes. I guess I'm tired of wearing masks. Me too. Let me ask you something. Why don't you come tonight? You first. See you. That's lovely. And I really wish I could say the same, but I came for Max. What do you mean? You and... Not you and Max. <laughs> Me and Max. No. 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 This and Max. Now, don't give me a killing Max won't solve anything speech, because it will. Aren't you tired of this sanctimonious Robert Baron always coming out on top when he should be six feet under? I'm sure you have a lot of problems with your boss, but I mean, who the hell do you think you are? I don't know anymore, Bruce. <laughs> Kiss under the mistletoe. You know, mistletoe can be deadly if you eat it. A kiss can be even deadly. Oh my god. Does this mean we have to start fighting? Let's go outside. Well, certainly Pfeiffer delivers probably one of the best performances of in, in any Batman movie. That, uh, I'll give you that. Yeah, yeah. And I'm including, you know, I'm including the present day iterations oh, yeah. of the character. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, it's, so I mean, it's something to behold. Yeah, she's the reason to watch it, uh, and she yeah. was she was definitely she was definitely doing you know uh you know uh, that was it was part of a gr- uh, string of really good performances from her in that period so mm-hmm. uh so i mean you know <clears throat> there's a <clears throat> i have a you know the i don't really mind Danny devito i i i think uh i think he's okay in it uh he he makes a good penguin and uh, I like how they they ratcheted up the character and made it uh, a little bit more disgusting. Uh, 
than it might have been before. And uh, I don't really love the movie, but uh, but I do love Pfeiffer in it. It's, oh yeah, uh, no question. That's yeah. I mean, I, I I think I think Devito suffers just because Michelle Pfeiffer's so good. And her mm-hmm. subplot is so good. It's like yeah. you know, get back to the get back to the subplot we actually care about. Um, yeah, right. And Pfeiffer, Pfeiffer has you know just like she did in Fabulous Baker Boys. It's it's a kind of like <clears throat> throwback uh, sensuality about her. Mm. Uh, even even in a role like Catwoman, I don't quite know how to explain it. Like if if um, if Fabulous Baker Boys is a '40s or '50s uh, screen siren, then Catwoman feel, feels like her version of the '60s. Uh, mm-hmm. Her '60s. Of that, you know, almost. Yeah, like a sex, well, like the '60s sex kitten, almost. Yeah, kind of yeah, real. like like something that James Fonda might have done back then. Right. Yeah. I, I, I want to add something though about this movie. That when we get to this movie this weekend, there's a realization I think among everybody that ha, you know we talked about the fatigue, but you can honestly say has Hollywood at this time in 1992 with Batman Returns, the sequel to one of the biggest movies of the decade so far. Has Hollywood reached some sort of franchise fatigue? I mean, you have Batman, Jack Ryan, which is in, and Lethal Weapon, all sort of, you know, an alien, all sort of blasé, uh, if we will. No, I mean, well, I mean, they were uh, most of them were big hits. They were not. They were not up to the quality, though. Of, I mean, it's obvious that anyone paying attention is like thinking to themselves, "Wow, this is not good." Um, well, Lethal the Weapon clock. three made more. Lethal Weapon three made more money than Lethal Weapon two. Right. Patriot Games made, I think, made about the same as Red October. Um, obviously, Batman Returns didn't make the money as Batman. Yeah, but so, you know what I'm I mean, saying? The quality is though. The, there's a drop off in quality. That is. Yeah, I, so I think. we would not be having a conversation about franchise fatigue if these movies were better. It's only about quality. If you, if you if 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 Lethal Weapon three was as good as Lethal Weapon two, if Patriot mm-hmm. Games was as good as Red October yeah. and so forth, then there's no quality about then there's no there's no discussion about franchise fatigue. Yeah. So it's just that that's just the way it goes. It's only one. Well, the, pro- the problem is okay. The problem is that you've got you've got people who want to ensure that these movies are hits. They're micromanaging the movies. Mm-hmm. And they're and they're ruining them in the process. That's basically the issue. I mean, that's certainly well, the issue with with uh, with Alien Three. Yeah, at I least. mean, got, I mean, I just remember being so disappointed at this time, at this at this point in the summer, um, with the movie so far. Um, so, well, apparently, observation. apparently, we weren't. We weren't that fatigued with franchises because that's all we have today. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 but you were, I mean, you may have been disappointed, but you still went and paid your seven bucks. So, I mean, that, God, they're not, seven bucks. I mean, they're not going to, they're not going to refund you if you're disappointed. Right. Yeah. All right. June 20th, the lover, the lover. Uh, Jean-Jacques, I know, uh, the French filmmaker. It's a beautiful looking movie. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I think he got an Oscar nomination for its photography. But uh, I tried to watch it again and uh, found it to be incredibly uh, dull. Uh, I, I, 
I could I could not get through it. I don't there's nothing painful about Jane March, I'll tell you that much. Yeah, no no, but he should stick to he should stick to bears and early man. Um Jane March. <laughs> yeah, uh, uh yeah. Um, tough movie. All right. Well, speaking movie. of sleepers, we, we have we have the comedy sleeper. And uh, this was a little thriller sleeper of sorts on June 26th. It was Unlawful unlawful Entry, uh, Kurt Russell and Madeline Stowe, but mostly the the praise uh, revolved around Ray Liotta as a dirty cop. Mm-hmm. Now, right. in the aftermath of the L.A. riots, uh, this might have been the one that spoke more keenly of that uh, social issue than mm-hmm. something like Lethal Weapon 3. Yeah, and yeah. it did, and it's, it's just unfortunately... Uh, you know, uh, not it, it probably wasn't a bigger hit than it. It might have it might have done better in the fall if they put it as a fall release. Because, right. I mean, there's even a scene where he uh, he beats up uh, 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 a black suspect and and so forth. I mean, so it's a very potent movie. Mm-hmm. And this is this this was one of the two trends of the whole year of '92. One was the kind of the pushing the boundaries of sexuality in movies, which was going on, and then this whole literally a year, two year trend of like the high concept domestic thriller. You know, mm-hmm. you had Hannah Rock's the Cradle, single white female, consenting adults, you know, the person in the name you know, the person you thought you could trust but you couldn't. So this was about the, the cop you couldn't trust. And Right. Uh, and this and was also, like one of the better also, one of the better of the two. It's a movie too this is another trend that's going on, uh at this time. The it's sort of a movie about the changing face of masculinity. Uh, You know, it's funny. You have Kurt Russell in the lead, and he, this just shows you how good an actor he is, first of all, that he can, he can do something like Snake Plissken barely a a decade earlier, uh, and then do uh, roles like this, or like in Breakdown, where he's playing, playing a, playing a, uh, uh, a husband that needs to find his inner, you know, his inner Lee Marvin or something, mm-hmm. and right. can't seem to find it uh, until it becomes it becomes an imperative. But uh, uh, he's he's very good at it. Madeline Stowe, of course, plays his wife, and and uh, and Ray Liotta is great in it. Uh, as the the psycho cop, this would be also a movie that you probably is this a movie that could be made today because of the sensitivity well, it around. Remade. It was remade, uh, but in a different way by Neil Butte. Whatever that movie he made, uh, like with Lake Sam Jackson Paris. and Kerry Washington. Oh yeah, he, oh Lake Terrace. But he can't erase it. He made he made a Sam Jackson Ray Liotta. Uh, which was yeah. which was interesting. But they, ne- but they never made they never made one that's like a white cop and a black couple. <laughs> it's like you know, really. That's, that, yeah, they should make that one. That would be no. That would well, be t- they, that would be rough. That, well, that's the best. Well, that's the best part of uh, Crash is that whole section. Is the uh-huh. Matt Dillon, uh-huh. Matt Dillon, Terrence Howard section. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. I I really enjoy Unlawful Entry. It's a uh, uh, yeah. It's a uh, Jonathan Kaplan movie, and it has a kind of a B movie quality to it, but uh, in a way that I kind of enjoy. Uh, yeah. What, hap- what happened to Kaplan? Does it get the job done? 
<laughs> yeah, it gets the job done. Uh, it, what happened to Kaplan? Well, he—he. It is a, well, he, he, it is a painful ca- movie, though. It it is. Uh, <laughs> there there is pain in it, uh, but uh, Jonathan Kaplan, I guess, uh, went on to produce and direct uh, ER for many years. Right. Uh, so that that kind of uh, that kind of limited his movie output, I think, and and probably made him very rich to the point where he doesn't really yeah. have to make it. I'm sure. I'm sure he's still spending the ER money. You mentioned painful. Uh, the two actors that act pain the best to me are Mel Gibson and Kurt Russell. Like, there's a scene in Unlawful Entry where Ray Liotta punches Kurt Russell in the stomach. Uh-huh. And, uh, oh, my God. I mean, it's a special gift to be able to act pain like that. You know, when Karen first met you, she actually thought you were different than her gambling father. What? It's very interesting how people follow patterns. See, she doesn't feel safe with you either, Michael. And Karen needs to feel protected from when those coyotes come charging out of the brush. You listen to me. You stay the fuck away from her. Assaulting a police officer? A nice civilized man like you, Michael? What are you gonna do? Arrest me? Arrest you? I could kill you. And he died quite well in uh, in uh, the remake of the Poseidon Adventure too. So, <laughs> that oh was... God, that's right. Oh, oh God, God. Every, everybody died <laughs> with that movie. Thank you. 